On this episode, we discuss the Lion King doing very well, a new patent for a mobile Xbox controller, there being a settlement for a Pixel lawsuit, and there could be malware baked into some Android. Sort of. Plus, Chris has another tap that app. He's reviewing YouTube TV. This is one that you'll definitely want to see. This and more in this week's show. I'm Josh Liston from On The Bubble Podcast, an oral history of television fandom, part of the Gunner Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other awesome geeky shows at GunnerGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnerGeek.com show. Here, we're a bunch of geeks talking about geeky things. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen. But what if I'm in the mood for a T-Swift story? Chris. I've heard the X is going to give it to you. And SP. That's how we roll on Gonna Geek on Monday night. We get crazy! Gonna Geek Productions presents the official GunnaGeek.com show. Welcome to an all-new episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. I am Stephen John Drew, and I am pleased to say that Chris Farrell is here this week, this week with me. Sup, dude? Well, I may not be able to accurately say that, but I can at least be excited that you're the hero. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. I completely, completely botched introducing you, and I could have done it and edited it, but why should I bother editing it? Because nobody really likes me. That's the thing. What is an edit? What What is this you're speaking of? I'm, I'm confused. Edit? I'm not sure. I've heard that there's this thing called editing, and you're supposed to do a thing where you go in afterwards and you fix mistakes, but uh, who knows about mm. that? I'm, I'm not so, sure. I'm not sure. So if I do this editing, then I get a podcast A word? Yes, you do get a podcast A word. You get one of those. Mm. Um, I had a question for you, Chris Farrell. Oh, quest away, good sir. Quest away. If I'm a longtime Stargate Pioneer fan, why am I disappointed? Why is he not here? Where is he? Where is he this week? Because SP and I are getting a divorce and we uh, didn't want to inflict our troubles upon everyone watching the show live and you, Steven. So it's best that while the divorce is taking place, we, we be separate for a bit. Well, I thing that I would like to highlight right now is that that's not true. Absolutely <laughs> not true. Uh, SP is actually a way... For uh, another couple of weeks, he's supposed Likely to be story. supposed to be back in September, but who knows? Maybe he'll make an appearance before then. We don't know. We don't know, but he's supposed to be back in uh, mid-September. He's just off doing some summer things, getting some projects all completed, and we do dearly, dearly miss him. And uh, we're trying to have some guests in between and whatnot, but we thought this week it would just be Chris and I. And we got a special segment coming up uh, that Chris has prepared for us. I'm looking forward to it, and we'll uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. After we do the news. This week in the news, we'll go ahead and kick it off with some wonderful malware news that apparently, um, yeah, I guess what uh, people are trying to use scare tactics to make us all very afraid, very, very afraid of Android. This has been published all over the place recently. And what, something that 
I'm a little disappointed with. I'm so scared. I know. I'm scared so of scared. it, and I'm hugging it. There was recently, by the way, for the audio listener, Chris is caressing his wonderful Pixel 2. He's he's actually actually holding it, and his eyes are closed. He's rocking it back and forth. It's quite the sight. It's quite the unusual sight, to be honest. But this news article came out saying that millions of Android smartphones that are being purchased have dangerous malware factory installed. And you're thinking to yourself, what? This has got to be just somebody making this up. But no, this is according to Google's own security research team. There is a member of the research team named Maddie Stone. She's a security researcher with the Google Project Zero, which is geared towards finding security flaws. They found and announced last week that there is indeed millions of Android devices that are being sold, pre-installed with malware or other security issues. They tend to be tied to vulnerable apps and other compromised apps that are coming preloaded onto these devices. So what you're saying is, holy cow, this means that any and all Androids are affected by this. That's what you're saying to me, right, Chris Farrell? Yes, every Android phone is impacted by this. This malware is what makes phones explode. Just ask Samsung <laughs> with their Galaxy Note 7. Boom, this malware caused the phone to explode. Not bad battery manufacturing or anything like that. And that's why the Galaxy Fold doesn't fold. It's all because the software screwed up the hardware somehow. No, that's not true at all. This it's was super true. This was all to do with Android's open source project, also known as AOSP which is essentially a lower a lower cost alternative to the full flat version of Android. This is often versions of Android that are sold but rebranded. In this report, if you go and check it out, you'll see that an example that they cite of AOSP is Amazon Kindle devices. That's an example of the Android open source project. So if you've ever owned a Kindle device, it's not actually branded as Kindle. And while there is options to add some Android apps and sideload some apps and do other weird things. It's not natively got the Google Play Store. Now, it's important to note that while the report did list uh, Amazon as an example of the AOSP, it didn't actually say that Kindle devices were affected. It didn't actually say specifically any brands that were affected. But this is something that you might want to be aware of because there are a lot of generic Android or generic sort of Android products that are out there. A lot of tablets, a lot of things that are really odd and really questionable. And this just goes to show you, you might want to be very, very cautious of what you're buying because potentially there is malware pre-installed onto that device. This did go and list and say specifically that it was only the AOSP devices and that all of the other, the full flat version uh, devices go through a specific security check. The full flat versions, they did have actually listed there things like Samsung, things like Pixel, other reputable brands that are actually running the proper Android version. They go through various testing before the, the devices are supposedly released. So. If you're running something like a Samsung device or another reputable brand, the odds are you're not affected by this. But know that if it is one that's got its own unique app store, you might want to be very, very cautious. 
Chris Farrell, have you ever owned one of those devices? I don't think that I have it, but it's one of those things like if you're at your local convenience store or drugstore and you see them advertising their generic brand Android tablet for 20 bucks, there's a reason it's 20 bucks because it's probably not very good and because it's probably going to steal all your PII because of whoever made it. So just be smart with things like Steven said, stick to the reputable brands. You're probably going to be safer that way. I honestly don't know what are good malware scanners in the Google Play Store because I tend to think that all of those apps are BS and I've never really investigated that much, but I'm sure there's legitimate ones that could be used. You know what I think is legitimate? I think that it's legitimate when you buy the Chris Farrell's definitely not spying on you Android tablet device because he's selling those now. And it has me just going like this on the cover. For the audio listener, he's giving a thumbs up. (laughs) Moving on to the next news point here. Chris wants to go and have a little talk about the circle of life, right? It is the circle of life. We're Steven, you and I are children of the 80s and 90s. We remember going in 1994 and seeing a little flick called The Lion King. Well, we do know that just recently Disney remade it as a fully CGI movie with the exception of one shot. And it has officially crossed the $1.3 billion mark at the international box office, beating out Disney's film Frozen at $1.27 million, billion, excuse me, to become the top grossing animated film of all time. And that's great. That's really interesting. But where it gets even stranger, though, is that Disney seems pretty loath to call it an animated film at all. In fact, they keep referring to it as their CGI film, things like that. And it, it's a pretty odd stance to take, given how much they like to talk about all these records they break. So why are they so insistent on avoiding the animation labels? What a lot of people are asking right now. And some of the thought going around right now is that There's a stigma associated with animation in some people's eyes when it comes to awards and Disney might be trying to angle for some kind of awards for the Lion King at this upcoming awards season. Or the other could be they just want to emphasize the the power behind their photorealistic CGI technology by not even calling it animated at all. It's really interesting to me that they aren't tooting their own horn on this one because I guess in their minds, it's not necessarily a record they want. They'll take the $1.3 billion, I'm sure, but They don't want the new Lion King to be called animated. And I guess technically they're right because it's all CGI. Weird stance for Disney to take, though. It is a weird stance for them to take. However, I actually did go and I saw it. I I did see it. And I don't necessarily disagree with the distinction because when you watch something like that, it it is photorealistic. And so where does the difference come between calling a movie like that animation and calling a big box action where pretty much the heads are the only real thing and the rest is all CGI, not animation? I think that if you see Lion King, it feels like it's it's an actual video recorded movie aside from the fact that there's talking animals like it's very very well done and when i look at things like animated films and even things like frozen and more recent disney films lion king is a very different style and if we're gonna start having these photorealistic cgi films i actually agree that they need a category that is not animation because an animated film has a different look And obviously that evolves with time. If we look at things like Frozen, that is very different animation than the Disney films of when we were younger. But 
it doesn't look photorealistic. So I don't disagree with them trying to give it its own distinction. However, if you're going to make up a new category for your film, you don't have a category at the award show anymore. So you're kind of removing yourself from the possibility for awards. <laughs> see, see, that's where it's interesting is I'm not sure I'd necessarily buy the award show piece other than they're probably going to be nominated for best animated film. They're going to get nominated for special effects. I'm sure based off of everything that was done on there, it's just a question of what, what's the Disney play to downplay the fact that this is in the animation category. Well, I, I have to say, I thought it was really well done, but I also completely think that um, they're ahead of their time to not, to, to try to give it its own little branding. Like I said, I agree with it, but I don't think we're there yet because I don't think that there is enough of them yet. As soon as we start to get more, I do think they need their own category because it is very, very, very different than traditional animation of any form, even computer-generated animation. Uh, I In the chat at Geeks.Live, we have Suncast saying a special effects category. I guess, but then are you looking at the whole movie overall for special effects or can you now consider individual uh, scenes that are having special effects? How are you basically uh, giving the two, analyzing the two differently? Because something that is using special effects in a small amount might be different than an entire film that is built that style. I, I again, I, I think that they're right to want that other category, but I don't think we have enough of them yet, unless you consider the fact that all of this is CGI. This entire gunnageek.com show, 100% CGI. This is a deep fake Chris right here. I'm not actually here. <laughs> Steven is just recording my voice as I dial in to the Gunnageek hotline. Oh, that hotline. That's got some interesting things in it. It's hot. It's don't hot. check the voicemails. You don't want to know what's on there. It gets pretty saucy. <laughs> Moving on to the next news point here. We're going to talk a little bit about Xbox mobile patents. There was recently a patent filed by Microsoft that seems to reveal some plans for controllers that will transform smartphones into handheld Xbox consoles. This is something that was filed on July 9th, and the concept behind this is essentially charging for a device that's going to end up allowing a phone to turn into a mobile version of an Xbox. And there are some renders that have come out and you can go ahead and find those online and whatnot that some people have theorized based off of the rudimentary patent drawing. And essentially the idea is shoving a phone into a physical device that emulates an Xbox controller sort of thing. Now, there's been no secret made by Microsoft that they're working on some cloud movement going forward. They actually came into a strategic deal, I believe it was, with Sony. I believe it was who they decided they were going to work with for a strategic cloud movement. And I think that this is an obvious patent for them to get if they're really wanting to go that way. Because if you can really use cloud gaming on any platform, well... What device does all sorts of people have right in their pocket? A phone. So work towards giving that cloud possibility on the phone. And so I think this patent makes complete self that, sense that you would patent a physical device that emulates a Xbox controller for a phone. I really like the mock-up that Yanko Design did do on this. If you want to go ahead and check that out again, there is a link 
in the show notes at gunnageek.com. And I could actually see myself using this if cloud gaming is a success and a device like this was pretty comfortable to use because what has been very popular over the last couple of years, the Switch. And so this is kind of like Xbox, but Switch, but cloud. Yeah, combine it all into one thing. So I, I think it's interesting in that regard. I think it makes it a lot easier to game when you're on the go because remember, at Project X Cloud and stuff like that was demoed with pairing up an Xbox controller over Bluetooth to your phone, which is probably a great gameplay experience. But if you are traveling somewhere and you've got your go bag, you're not going to want to carry a full size Xbox controller to play Xbox games on your cell phone. And there's really no way to make that controller not take a bunch of space. Whereas this add on piece, it seems like you can cut it down into a fairly small size and be able to carry it around with you easily. And then hook it in your phone and play when you want to, or hook it up to your phone rather and play when you want to. So I'm totally on board with the idea. And let's also keep in mind, just because they patent it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to become a product. That's a good point. The one thing that I did want to mention, though, with this is that obviously the idea of cloud gaming is ultra portable. And so something like uh, having it with your phone being ultra portable you know that if you're going to go on a trip somewhere, you are going to be able to do cloud gaming because we all know that airport and hotel Wi-Fi is, is super, super fantastic, right? So obviously, you're going to know that as soon as you leave your house, if you got one of these things, you have very reliable internet everywhere you go. Yes, of course, that's the case. <laughs> but to be fair, they made it seem like you'd be able to play over good cellular networks too. And I have found... Most of the time when I'm in the airport, I don't connect to the free Wi-Fi because I don't want to deal with all my data getting taken. But the cellular network, pretty decent in most of the airports I've been to. So it's probably good enough to get some gaming in, assuming you have a data plan that will allow you to do so. Fine, then. Go ahead. Prove me wrong. Use logic. How it's dare you? For. How dare you use logic? It's what I'm here for. You know who else is using lo logic? The lawyers who are suing Google. <laughs> Terrible segue. Uh, hey, it works, though. So, Stephen, I don't remember. Did you have an OG Google Pixel or I Pixel did. XL? I, ha I did have an old OG Google Pixel. I had the original Pixel, and then I ended up having issues with... Uh, what was it that went wrong on it? Oh, I don't remember. Something went wrong on it, and I had to claim my warranty, and I got a free upgrade to a Pixel, too. Hmm. Well, you weren't the only person that had problems with the original Google Pixel. If you weren't familiar, Google just recently settled a class action lawsuit that claimed the company knowingly sold first-generation Pixel phones with defective microphones in them. The final approval for this deal has gone through, and what it means now is if you bought an original Pixel or Pixel XL phone before January 7th, 2017, you might be eligible for some money, and they're being surprisingly open to the folks that can get this money and it could be something as little as 20 bucks or you could get a lot more but steven I, I hate to tell you there's some restrictions and you're gonna get hit with one of these restrictions so you can't be part of this class action lawsuit one of those first requirements to be a part of this class is you have to live in the united states so sorry steven you can't you can't get on this one but for the rest of our listeners and viewers who might have had a pixel xl during this time here's the rest of the requirements to join in you have to have bought a new Pixel or Pixel XL smartphone manufactured before January 4th, 2017, and you didn't buy it just to resell it also. 
You have to have not received a replacement device manufactured after January 3rd, 2017 or refurbished after June 5th, 2017. And you cannot be a Google employee, a family member of the judge, a family member of the lawyer, or actually working this case to be eligible to get some free money. So if you meet all these requirements, what, what, what does it mean? What kind of money could you get? Well, Google is paying $7.25 million for the settlement. Once things like admin fees and attorney fees are paid, the rest go to the members of the class action lawsuit. It's broken up as follows. Up to 20 bucks to each person who owned an eligible Pixel or Pixel XL, but either didn't run into the audio defect or doesn't have documentation of it. So you got a chance there that if you owned one and your phone worked just fine, you might still be able to get 20 bucks out. Now, that pool is capped at 25% of the total settlement funds. So if more than 145,000 people submit $20 claims, the number gets prorated down and will likely be less. So if there's everyone submitting, you'll get less than $20, but you still might get some free money. If you paid insurance deductible to receive a replacement pick, so you'll get refunded that deductible. So if you're someone like Steven who had a problem with your phone and maybe you didn't have a good warranty, but you bought that extended insurance and you paid your hundred bucks on that, they'll refund you the hundred bucks you paid on it. So basically you got a free upgrade. If you experience the microphone issues on multiple devices and have documentation to prove it, you'll get $500. Now that's multiple devices and all the documentation, meaning chat transcripts or emails you've traded with Google, something like that. And then finally, if you ran into the issue on a single phone, you'll get $350 unless there's not enough money left in the payment to make those payments. Meaning, i.e. they've paid out to everyone else already and they can't fund you. So <laughs> if you are someone who owned the Pixel XL or the Pixel 1 original generation that meet all these requirements and you want to try and get your free money, you can go and become part of that class action lawsuit online up until October 7th in the United States, you can submit your claim and get you some free money. Now, good for my, good for not Microsoft, good for Google paying out here. They really didn't have much of a choice, but this is Pixel 1 and Pixel 3 have all had issues. Pixel 3 doesn't have a class action lawsuit against it yet, but Google is replacing a lot of devices because of slowdown issues. Pixel 2 XL had screen issues. I think we're seeing a trend here, which is while the Pixels have great software, there's hardware issues from time to time. So I'm a Pixel convert. I fully admit it. Just be cognizant of that if you decide to become part of the Pixel family with the upcoming 4 and 4XL. Um, I have to say that I would be very, 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 very upset if I was excluded from this because I'm in Canada and mm -hmm. I did pay my warranty fee because I was supposed to pay it. But for some reason, it never was put on my bill, which well, it was supposed to be. So I got lucky you on lucked that. Out. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, there's nothing stopping any Canadians impacted from filing a class action suit in Canada as well. That's what I was thinking, because obviously there are different laws in different regions. And, you know, whether it's music in podcast or something else, you got to make sure that you're always following the laws according to your specific reason. For Music example, I can go ahead and do all sorts of Canadian legal activities, if you know what I mean. Chris Farrell cannot, because we're in two different countries. Ride mooses around the countryside. Absolutely what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I am talking about. Moving on to our extra, extra section here. We got a couple quick things we just want to touch on very, very quick. The first is, number one, uh, guess what? 
is happening out of the world of Apple. There's a new Face ID hack. Chris, you're so worried about this, right? I don't have any devices that use Face ID, but I'm curious about it, to be fair. <laughs> so there's been a released Face ID hack. As you may or may not recall, when the iPhone X came out, one of the big things that were super, super build was that it was very, very secure and it was very hard to fool the Apple Face ID because it used a variety of different sensors. And so you weren't just holding up a picture of somebody anymore. That happened to me on my Moto X, by the way. <laughs> the Moto X was, was, was fooled by my wife holding up a picture of me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that happened. But there was a bunch of hoo hoorah, we'll say hoorah, about uh, the Face ID being very, very secure. And over the years, we've seen some different things come up where there have been twins that have fooled or similar looking siblings. Even a mother-son combination once fooled it. But the thing that really, really, really made me interested was this one that just came out because right away it was billed as completely impractical. And what it was was affixing glasses with black tape over the eyes to an unconscious owner or somebody sleeping was able to <laughs> fool it. If you recall, one of the big things about the, the face ID was the fact that it was supposed to be paying attention to see whether or not you were actually having your eyes open so that somebody couldn't just take your phone while you're asleep and put it in front of your eyes. Apparently, when you wear glasses and you put tape over top of the eyes, then Face ID doesn't really try to analyze the 3D profile properly when wearing those sort of dark glasses because I guess sunglasses or whatever. So that's how they were able to fool it was they took a pair of glasses, they put black Tricky. tape over it, and uh, they were in. They were in. So if you're worried that your phone is going to be used when you're asleep or unconscious, just make sure that you're not wearing sunglasses or glasses with tape on them. Mine are just regular. I'm good to go then. <laughs> and the last thing that we want to mention, our extra extra here, is that there's a new feature coming to Chrome, well overdue. If you log into Chrome in numerous places and you have your account set to sync, in the past, you might have seen that when you open up a new tab, you'll see the windows that are open from other sessions. Well, Chrome is pushing out a update that's going to allow you from desktop to go ahead and send a web page to a device. So like, let's say you're sitting there and you're on gunageek.com and you go, I want to send this over to my Android device soon once this finishes rolling out, you're going to be able to go and uh, through a special menu, send it over to your Android device so you can go ahead and keep reading there. This is going to be super handy. I actually really, really have wanted this feature for a while because I actually have this happen a lot where I start on something here and then I got to go occupy myself for a little while. We'll leave it at that. And I want to keep reading the thing. So I'm really, really looking forward to doing this while I go to bed because my wife's like, you got to go to bed, Steven. So yeah. I, Don't do it. No. Fight the power. Exactly. No, this is actually going to be a really handy feature. So Chris Farrell, you can go ahead and send all of your special websites to your phone. I mean, yeah, I guess you could. 
It's interesting. I mean, it's not an unheard of tool. There's already third-party tools that do this, but this gives you a chance to not have to use those. Uh, but now you can go ahead and say it's built right in. It's baked right in. Baked right in. Speaking of baked right in, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about some of the features that are baked right in to YouTube TV. While you may know Chris loves phones, tablets, and other gadgets, did you know he's also a master tap dancer? It's time for him to combine the two passions in a segment he calls Chris Taps That App. All right, so we are back with another installment of Chris Taps That App this week. And this week, we're going to do things slightly different. If you've been watching this segment on The Good Geek Show before, you've probably seen me throw up a couple screenshots from time to time, but it's mostly talking through how an app works. In this case, we're going to dive in. We're going to show some interactions with the web version of this app, which is surprisingly similar to the application version you would have on any of your devices. So what are we talking about this week? If you've been watching the gunageek.com show or listening to any other podcasts I'm on, you've probably heard me talk about the fact that I've been considering cutting the cord, getting rid of my Comcast cable service, and looking at some online services to be able to watch television programs of a variety of different kinds. So there's quite a few that there are to pick from out there right now. When it came to mine, there were only three I narrowed it down to, my top three. I'll share those with you guys now. I'm not going to dig into the pros and cons of each one. They're all pretty good services, but there was one I decided to go with. And one caveat as to why that might be, where I live, a lot of people are probably going, if you want to cut the cord, why don't you use an antenna? Yeah, it doesn't work so great for me. I live in the middle of the mountains, and where I live in the mountains, I'm in a valley. So there's not much in the way of antenna signal. When I went to, I believe the site is antennaweb.org, I saw about the only show I'd be able to get on an antenna if I was lucky was PBS. So antenna was not really a go for me. I had to look at some services that would include local channels. And that's the hard thing depending on where you are. And we'll touch on that a little bit. Let's go into the three services I was looking at. And this is in no order of high rank them. It's just the order I wrote them on paper. There was Sling TV, which is by Dish Network pretty much one of the first entries in the streaming television market. There was PlayStation View, and while it has PlayStation in the title, it is not a service that Sony is limited to just the PlayStation 4. It's on a variety of devices. And then finally, there is YouTube TV, which is Google's entry into the streaming television market. Now, I did mention the fact that there's a variety of different options, pros and cons to each of these. I'm not going to dig into those right now. We can do that in a later segment. But for me, I ended up going with YouTube TV. Now, why did I do that? Let's go through and let's show some examples of how it works. Let's go look at the front of their website and we can kind of get an idea from there. So right now we have flipped things over to a live look at YouTube TV's welcome page. If you are not currently a subscriber for me to do this, since I'm normally logged in, you're in an incognito tab in Chrome right now. But what you can see here is the typical splash page that Google uses to kind of introduce you to YouTube TV. It's their cable-free live TV event, TV from 70 plus networks, depending if you're lucky. The big thing is it's $49.99 a month. So what does that get you? We'll scroll down a little bit and here's what they say it gets you. Six accounts per household, meaning if you live with your wife or your kids or there's a bunch of people in your house, everyone can have their own YouTube TV account, meaning I don't have to share my DVR with my wife and vice versa. So if I want to watch something that she doesn't watch. She doesn't have to dig through those shows in the DVR. She literally just logs into the app and swaps over to her account. Problem solved. It's a pretty cool way to divide things out and make it so that everyone gets 
personalized TV. So how do you do that? Like it says right here on the right side, cloud DVR with no storage limits. They're not joking. So one of the things when you go and look at DVRs on Cindy's other streaming services is that you're limited to 20 or 50 hours. Google gives you unlimited hours, but you can only keep a recording for nine months, which is still longer than everyone else. But there is a limit to what you get for those for that unlimited time. Like I said, it lasts only nine months. So the networks you get, they do give you a preview here for your $49.99 a month. You'll get live sports, 70 plus different channels, unlimited DVR. You can run three streams at a time and the available channels they'll give you are shown on screen right now. Anything from your locals like ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, things like sports, ESPN 1, 2, ESPN U, ESPN News, stuff like that. When it comes to finding sports on streaming, YouTube has a pretty good selection. They also have things like NBA TV and MLB TV. There is a variety of different things here, including access to YouTube originals, which is stuff you used to be able to get with, I think it's a YouTube premium subscription. And then finally, if you want to throw on a little extra money, you can add on Curiosity Stream, Epics, NBA League Pass for an additional charge per month, similar to what you'd see with regular cable, stuff like that. Now, one of the things that's really going to drive any decision when it comes to streaming television is what devices can I get this on? And the thing I liked is YouTube TVs and a lot of things. Makes sense it'd be on Android TV. There's apps that work for Samsung TVs, LG TVs, Vizio. You can see them all on here. But more importantly, when it comes to devices, Google Chromecast, Roku, Apple TV, uh, Xbox Ones, consoles, Android phones or tablets running Android 5.0 and up, and iOS devices like iPhones and iPads. And also coming sometime this calendar year, they haven't said when, so sometime before the end of 2019, a YouTube TV app will officially be coming to the Fire TV stick from Amazon. There is a, a version you can sideload made by independent developers. It's pretty good, but it's not an official version of the YouTube TV app, just something to keep in mind. But eventually, by the end of this year, pretty much all of the major streaming devices will be able to support YouTube, YouTube TV apps, which is important. Now, my house is predominantly full of Roku's, so the problem wasn't exactly too difficult there when it came to getting this app on everything. And one thing to keep in mind is all these streaming services, I forgot to mention this little blue bar at the top of the screen, they all have demos. They all have trial periods. Normally, YouTube TV gives a five-day trial period. Right now, they're giving a two-week trial period so you can sign up and try it out for yourself and see if it's something you'll like. Some of the problems, though, YouTube TV is only available to people in the United States right now. So, for instance, Stephen, you in Canada, you won't be able to use YouTube TV. Sorry to tell you that. You're probably not shocked that I'm telling you that either. So, let's get into what the interface looks like for YouTube TV. The web version of it is pretty much what it looks like on a Roku, on an iOS device, pretty much any device. The web version interface that I'm about to show you is what it looks like on those devices. So let's flip on over to that. And right now we are on the YouTube TV homepage for someone who has subscribed and logged in. They split things into three tabs and we'll talk about those three tabs. Your default tab probably shouldn't surprise you. That's the homepage. Just like anything, there's a homepage. And they've put a variety of different things on the TV, on the homepage rather, for you to look at. At the top right now, we have the top picks for you. This is things that YouTube TV thinks I'll want to watch based off the fact I'm either recording them or I've watched them in the past, things like that. You might see, for instance, there's Dateline NBC on here. 
you see that there's video moving in this little graphic right here. YouTube TV does live previews for most any of their live content. So basically, you're getting a snapshot, a little thumbnail of what is currently airing on the channel at that time. So I can tell right now they're driving in a car on Dateline NBC. And if I push play, it would throw a video up at the top of the screen that picks off, picks up rather right where that left off. It also knows I've been watching an episode of Castle. I've watched episodes of Conan and might want to watch that. Things like that. So it's kind of interesting. You can scroll through and see all the things that YouTube TV thinks I might want to watch because it's top picks for me based off my history. Some of it makes no sense. Some of it, I think they just toss you wild things to say, hey, maybe you'll want to try watching this. I have no idea. You scroll down a little bit further, resume watching. These are things that I've either A, started watching on my DVR, or B, I watched live and then changed the channel. So for instance, Castle, I watched about 20 minutes of and I had to go do something else. So you see that the tab is still up says I have 39 minutes left. This episode of The Simpsons right next to it. I started watching The Simpsons for a couple minutes last night, watched probably four or five minutes, and then I changed the channel and went to something else. YouTube TV is telling me I can pick up watching where I left off by watching an on-demand version of it. So if I clicked on this button right now, it would bring up an on-demand version of The Simpsons where I left off. You can see there's other things on there like Dodgeball, Dodge Juggle 3 from all the ESPN 8, the Ocho things, a variety of different stuff that I've been watching. Scroll further down, shows. This is television programs that YouTube thinks I would like because A, I've either watched them in the past or I've recorded them. So again, you can scroll through and say, oh man, this is some stuff I haven't had a chance to watch or I would love to watch, anything like that. It, it's interesting from a discovery standpoint. It makes it so you do a lot less flipping through the guide and saying, oh my gosh, I got to find such and such, or I got to find something to watch. Well, you just go to the homepage and Google's kind of curated a list of things it thinks that you will like and want to watch. Scrolling down further, we have this add to your library section. So the way DVRs work on YouTube TV is you don't tell it to record a television program. You say, I like a sports team, or I like a movie, or I like this television program, and then it records all instances of it. So in this case, if you add to your library, say, the Oakland Raiders, every Oakland Raiders game that is on gets recorded and placed in your DVR. Or if you were to select Spider-Man Homecoming, every time it airs, YouTube records a copy of it and then puts it in your DVR for you to watch later. So Think of it almost, if you want to use YouTube terminology, as subscribing to a television show or to a movie or to a sports team, things like that, to have them appear in your DVR. Scrolling further down, it gives you a whole set of all of the either live or recorded sports you have on your DVR that you can go and watch. Does the same thing with news. Also makes suggestions for movies, and a lot of these I could just hit the play button and start them right now. For family, a lot of family programming, but that also includes cartoons. And then at the bottom, they put all of the YouTube originals that you could watch if you wanted to. I don't watch a lot of the YouTube originals, but I guess it's nice that they're there if I decide to watch them. So let's flip on over to the next tab. This is the library. And library is, in essence, your DVR when you pull it up on your cable box or anything like that in your house. At the top of the screen, new in your library is pretty much things that have recently recorded or aired that I can go and watch. So in this case, you can see I have five episodes of BattleBots I need to get caught up on. It tells me I have five new shows to watch. I can click on this, uh, the three dot button here, and you can say, hey, go to the BattleBots page. In this case, then takes me to a preview for BattleBots where I can say, oh, what are the shows I might have missed? And it shows up all here on the left. I can look at what are the episodes, when are the next ones airing, look at previous seasons, 
see the cast in a show, or then even find related YouTube videos. On the right side of the screen right here, you'll also see programs similar to BattleBots that Google thinks I might want to watch, and I can click on those and start watching in either on demand or add them to my DVR. I could do the same thing by going to the ABC page here, and it brings up all of my locals, everything that's airing on my local ABC right now, and then pretty much all of the on-demand or recorded content I would want to get to. Hit the series tab, it's everything that ABC, not AT&T, excuse me, has to offer. And there is a ton of on-demand content. It's very much like what you see on traditional on-demand programming and cable. So new in your library, those are the things that you can watch now that are recorded. Most watched, these are the things that I watch a lot. And you guys are getting some great insight into my television viewing habits. Some things I like to watch are not exactly a high quality television, but you get the idea. YouTube says, hey, I know you like to watch Jeopardy a lot. So it makes it really easy for me to find episodes of Jeopardy. Scrolling down further, scheduled recordings. This shows me everything that my DVR is either recording now or is going to be recording here in the future. So you can see I have episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine that'll be recording at 11 p.m. Rick and Morty recording later this evening. And you could scroll down and see, hey, what all is going to be showing up in my DVR? If you want to watch something that's not new in your DVR, but you might have a giant back catalog of, you keep scrolling back down further to this recording section. And this is sorted right now in the recently recorded uh, layout, but this is pretty much everything in the DVR. So if I wanted to watch Jeopardy, I'd click on that. It would bring up everything that I could be watching theoretically. So you can see I am not up to date on all my Jeopardy episodes. And if I wanted to start watching an episode from this screen, I don't want to do it because I'll get caught by the YouTube police. You just hit the little play button right here and it brings up a playing video of the most recent episode of Jeopardy. So this will work for anything in your DVR. And as you can see, I've gone hog wild because there's all sorts of stuff that I can record because who cares? I have no storage limits. There's no storage limits at all. So these are things I've either said I want to watch at some point in time or just kind of said, hey, let, let's see what this looks like. And the important thing also to keep in mind is if you decide you don't want to keep watching a show, just bring up the screen and uncheck this box right here where it says click to stop recording and it will no longer add shows to your DVR. Now, like I mentioned, one thing to keep in mind, you have an unlimited DVR, so who cares? Just let it roll. If it's something you might want to see, just let it record. It's not going to count against you and in nine months it goes away. Let's talk about the last tab real quick. This is the live tab. This takes me to a view of all of the channels I have. And if I start bringing my mouse through them, you'll start to see, oh, he's got all these things on ESPN2. He'd be watching the Ottawa Red Blacks, or he could be watching the West Virginia Region Little League on ESPN. But if you really want to get an idea of what's going on and make it real super interesting for you, just take your cursor and put it over and you get your live preview and you can say, hey, this is exactly what's going on on the, in this case, Universal Kids channel. And much like anything else on YouTube, as soon as you click this play button, that's when it would throw it up on screen. You'd be able to view it. We'll click on one real quick and pause it so that we don't get caught by the YouTube police here in a second. But you can see every channel I'd want to watch, it shows up in this live menu view with thumbnails so I can see things play and get an idea of what might be interesting. So when you're surfing, this is important because if you don't want to watch commercials, you just leave your cursor there for a second. You go, oh, it's on commercials right now. It's not worth stopping there while I'm surfing. Like I said, there is a boatload of stuff on YouTube TV. And real quick, before we get out of here, 
just so you guys get an idea of how it works. Let's say hypothetically, I wanted to start watching the Terminator. Click on that, hit the play button. You can see it brings up a YouTube video input right here. We're on a commercial right now. You can pause it. Just like everything else in YouTube, you have your bar down here where you can move it fast forward or backwards to what you're watching. You can skip forward, go back 15 seconds. Additionally, you can also turn on closed captioning, which is exactly like what you've seen in regular YouTube videos, things like that. You can also get into the stats or excuse me, the settings. You can set your playback speed, set subtitles there. But importantly, you could also change your playback quality. So say you were watching on mobile and you didn't want to watch a 1080p feed because it eats up your data, you could skip it down to 480p. It would re-render the video in 480p. Now, there are some drawbacks to YouTube TV that I have found, and I'm trying to get this to go back to where I want. We'll go back to the home screen, which is just hitting the home button, takes you back to what you've seen. So what are some drawbacks with YouTube TV I found using it lately? Uh, really the biggest one is there is not 5.1 surround sound for everything but a few on-demand things. Everything comes across in stereo. Not the end of the world if you have a receiver that can kind of pseudo decode and put it in a 5.1 surround, but still it's kind of annoying. But for the most part, I've been pretty pleased with it. There, I don't have all of the channels I might have wanted in the past. Like for instance, I don't have access to Comedy Central or History Channel or anything like that. But most of what I wanna watch, I can watch on YouTube TV and I'm saving a lot of money because it's 50 bucks a month. My cable bill has gotten cut in half basically by just dropping down to streaming, excuse me, cable only from, not cable, internet only from Comcast and also YouTube TV as a subscription service. And the nice thing is, if for some reason I decide I don't like YouTube TV, I can cancel my subscription. It's done right then, right there. And I could go and pick up like Sling TV, PlayStation View, something else like that. For the most part, I'm pretty damn satisfied with YouTube TV. I'm happy with how it's all turned out. I'm happy with the price I'm paying for it. And I think I'm getting bang for my buck. And most importantly, I think the DVR has been really cool because I'm not worrying about having to delete things off of it. It's not a problem. I can just watch whatever I want and it stays there for a while. One thing I did forget that is problematic about the DVR, however, is when it comes to CBS shows, that includes the CBS channel and the CW channel, if you want to watch a recording for the first six weeks you have a recording, it forces you to watch the on-demand version. Why is that a problem? Because you can't fast forward commercials on on-demand versions of television programs. So that is really the only annoying thing is forcing you to watch on demand. I can kind of get over it. It's not the end of the world. And really, aside from the superhero shows on the CW, there's not much content I watch on the CBS channel. So not the end of the world. If you've been thinking about cutting the cord, I'd really encourage you try out the seven day, excuse me, 14 day trial right now. See how you like it. Again, remember, it's only in the United States right now. So Steven, I'm sorry, you won't have a chance to try it out. But everyone else, if you're listening and you're in North America and you've been considering cutting the cable, I think it's an app well worth checking out. All right. I have a question for you, though, Chris Farrell, about all of this here. Quest away, sir. Quest away. How do I get on your subscription? Because <laughs> that's, that's what I want to do. Because I just want to milk right now. So it is possible to do that because, like I mentioned in the top of it, you can have up to six accounts in one family. Now, where it gets a little tricky is YouTube TV, especially in the apps, it uses your GPS to determine your location. So if you were, say, 
in your case, in Canada, or let's pretend you were in Washington state and you logged in as a member of my family, it would give you access to Washington state locals, but it would look at the GPS and realize, oh wait, this is in Washington state and the home area for Chris's uh, YouTube TV account is in West Virginia. And then I think it's within six weeks, it's going to force you to log back in in the home area before it would let you use YouTube TV again. So you can sort of do group family plans, but it's not easy if you all don't live in the same geographic location. But with a VPN? Maybe? Well, I don't know because I think they use the GPS on your cell phone or on your devices to get your location. So you would have to do the VPN on your uh, on your router or whatnot and then access it via Roku or something like that probably. But if you just did it on your cell phone, it would bypass the VPN by just using your GPS and realize, wait a second, this is wrong. Uh, there's no winning, is there? No, no, no free lunch. No free lunch. Well, I- I'm interested though. What do you guys have a lot of streaming services similar to like Sling TV, YouTube TV, things like that up in Canada? Or is it really just mostly a US thing right now? It's mostly US. And I think it's licensing is the big concern. Mm-hmm. And we see that with other mainstream streaming services as well, licensing issues. Uh, I hope YouTube does eventually get into this because it looks really cool. That was really informative, all of the things there. Uh, that you showed us. And I really like the unlimited cloud DVR because as you said, who cares? So if you're worried yeah. about something, just leave it. That's neat. I like that. Well, I do have kids who do watch things that are like a year old, but I could live with it. And then there's always on demand when it comes to that too. For From my standpoint, it's gotten me going, okay, I might want to watch this movie at a later time. So I record a movie and the next thing I know, I'm like, I want to watch that. The replacements now, I haven't seen that in years. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I recorded it and there's like three different versions sitting on my DVR because it's been re-aired so many times. So it's interesting in that regard. And it's not sports season yet. So I haven't had a chance to try this, but supposedly it's smart enough to know that one of the biggest problems, especially like Sundays here in the United States, is if you're watching the afternoon Fox channels, if a game goes into overtime, it screws up all of your evening DVR stuff. Supposedly they adjust for that that because they've got live metrics and stuff and know, hey, the NFL game ran 26 minutes late. So then they adjust all of your DVR recordings for, say, Family Guy or any of the other Sunday night Fox shows. So I'm curious to play around with that. I had a question about sort of the jumping around the DVR aspect of it. When you pulled up the live stream there uh, for the audio listeners, Chris had a bar like you would usually see and like regular live TV. It started the playback, the option to skip around where he opened up that session. So he opened up the session and just like you'd see on a regular DVR, there was a little small little space of what had played in those few seconds he had it up. Yes. If you're recording something and you pull up a live page, does it allow you to go all the way back? Is it smart enough to know that? So when you bring up something on your DVR that is in the middle of recording, it will give you an option of saying, do you want to start playback at the live point or at the beginning of the recording? Now, there is a catch on that that I've seen on the YouTube TV subreddit, which is if it's a sporting event that's more than three hours long, the buffer that you can go back is only three hours, despite the fact that it is recording. So that is one of the known issues. Say you're watching like some full six hour afternoon sporting event or whatever. You're like, oh, I want to start from scratch. It's not going to let you do that if you're post three hours into the show. It'll only let you go three hours back from live time. So that is one of the problems. Once the recording is done, 
then you can go back to the beginning, no problem. But it's it's kind of a pain in that regard. That being said, I don't watch a lot of sports that are greater than three hours that I'm that far behind on. So it's something I'm going to learn to live with. Um, also, you had quite a few different channels on there, which is great. Yes. Well, one of the things, though, that some cable companies and or DVR companies, I should say, are starting to do is give you the ability to hide channels from a live guide if you're a live mm-hmm. live watcher. Is yes. that possible where you can hide channels and get them out of your guide? It is. I'm glad you asked. You can also reorder your guide if you want because it's just a listing of channels and you can put them in whatever order you want, move your favorite ones to the top. But I have a Universal, the Spanish version of Universal, and I don't speak Spanish, so I hid the channel so it doesn't show up. So yes, you can hide channels that you get so that they don't show up in the logs and not the logs, the guide. And I do believe there are also parental controls that can be put in place as well. I didn't look into it a ton because in my use case, I'm not really dealing with parental controls on anything. Sure you are. You're locking away certain channels from your wife because you don't want her to get hooked on your show. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. I was going to say, I thought you didn't want her to start watching the shows that you watch so that you don't have to wait to watch them with her, but uh, that's fair too. Whatever, you go ahead and make that comment if you'd like about TLC. Uh, last question that I had for you about all of this here is you've yes. been using it for two weeks, three weeks now? About a month now. About a month. Okay. So a month, which is better than what I thought it was, which is three weeks. How has the service reliability been as far as consistent quality? I know you mentioned the 5.1 challenges, but with what you expect, as far as what they outline of the potential quality of what you can get, how has it been reliably for the different devices? I've never had a problem bringing up YouTube TV and playing anything on my DVR or playing any live channels, anything like that. There's a weird glitch on the Apple TV that they have since ironed out and fixed. And if you go to the subreddit for YouTube TV, the developer community for that app are actually pretty active and talk to folks where if you hit the play and pause button, when you were watching a live video, it wouldn't always unpause using the play pause button again. You had to just click on the pad to get it to un- to start playing again. But that that was weird and strange. There's some weird little quirks in a few things. But for the most part, I haven't had any problems other than the surround sound piece, which supposedly is on their roadmap of things that they are working on getting done is putting 5.1 or whatever the surround sound stuff is in place. The only other issue I've run into is there was a weird instance and I, I had to reboot the Apple TV and it stopped doing it where everything is set to the auto mode when it comes to the stream that's coming in. It lets the bandwidth of the connection determine whether it's going to be a 720 feed, 1080 or even lower. For some reason, the Apple TV was only pulling a 144p feed on my 4K screen and I would have to go in there and manually push it back to auto. I rebooted the Apple TV and it hasn't done it since. So I'm starting to think it was more of a weird edge case with the app and the Apple TV. So I haven't had any problems there. There's no 4K content for anyone that's asking. Supposedly, they're looking into some on-demand stuff that way. But every channel on there is either 1080p, 60 frames per second, or 720p, 60 frames per second. That's awesome. Yeah. I really, really do truly hope this comes to Canada because I think there it, it looks very promising. I really would like to see it be a success. I think we need a service like this to really be a success, something that has very high brand recognition, something that a lot of people have familiarity with, which is YouTube. And I think that if you get that, then that is really the key to getting more and more people to subscribe 
And then you get more people involved with that. And now more options are available. So I really, really, really hope that this is a success and that they continue to improve it and not abandon it along with other things in the Google graveyard. Yeah. I look forward to hearing how sports play out for you. And I really, really will ask you to talk about this again on the show as you've used it longer, because I think that cord cutting is really something that is becoming very attainable for many people right now, way more than it was a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, it was really hard for people to mm. even consider this concept. And I think that now you look at YouTube TV, most people could figure it out because there's devices everywhere that are compatible with it. Yeah. In regards to sports, I'll just mention real quick, part of what they sold the service on when it launched a year ago, two years ago, I don't even remember, is the fact it had ESPN 1, 2, and U. It had at Fox Sports 1 and 2, had MLB TV and NBA TV in the only tier that they have because you pay 50 bucks and you get all those channels unless it's one of the add-on ones. They did just also add the ACC network for folks that care about ACC sports. And rumors are that NFL network might be coming up as something that gets added. I don't necessarily believe that because if you look on the subreddit, that rumor comes up every year. Well, thank you very much, Chris Farrell. I do really appreciate you taking the time to do such an in-depth review. If you want to go ahead and check everything out, the video side of things of this, if you're listening through the audio side, it'd be great to do so. He had a full demonstration on there, screen share and everything. It's available at gunnageek.com. Is I think a worthwhile watch if you're listening to the show. And please don't judge my TV watching habits too harshly when you see what all was in my DVR. Nope, it's at the Chris Farrell on Twitter. Judge away. Judge away. Je feel free to tell me what I shouldn't be watching that was in my DVR. There was a Love Island, I think. Love Island was on there, That's wasn't it? That's in my wife's DVR, not mine. Oh, was it actually there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much, Chris. And I want to give you a moment now to plug and promote and do whatever you'd like to do. And I want to go ahead and also say that it's been a while since you've highlighted the other shows that you do. So you should, you should do that. Plug yourself. Plug myself. I hate plugging myself, but uh, Stephen is right. I do a couple other shows on the network. One is the Starling Tribune that I do with Stargate Pioneer and Michelle Ely, where we talk about the Arrow television show and also Legends of Tomorrow. We're getting prepped for the upcoming final season of Arrow by finishing up this last season of Legends Tomorrow. And then I also every Sunday do what we refer to as our wacky weekend morning show called All Things Good and Nerdy, where we just kind of rant and rave about some of the geeky and or nerdy news that's popped up in the past week. And so last week, we were joined by uh, Peter G, a.k.a. Sailor Poland, who writes over at Bleeding Cool yet again, and he was sharing some uh, possible information and speculation about the behind-the-scenes going-ons for Doctor Who right now, and it was very interesting, but also potentially very troubling for what's going on with the show. So if you're a Doctor Who fan and want to know some of the scandal that's going on, go check out that latest episode of ATGN. Also, I heard you were starting a new show that has a completely original name. I think uh, it's going to be called CordMurderers.com. I think that that's the new show Cord you're going to be doing. Slayers, thank you. Cord Slayers. Okay, Co Cord Slayers. Actually, I, I really want that domain now. Someone's going to steal it. <laughs> well, if Chris Farrell does go ahead and register that domain, I would look forward to seeing you talk more about cord cutting because he did a great job tonight. And if you also wanted to check out some other amazing geeky content, you can definitely do that. It's at gunnageek.com. I would like to have you check out some of the other amazing shows that are on the Gunna Geek Network. 
There's a lot of really good content there, and I encourage you to check that out. But that's going to go ahead and wrap it up. So for episode 298 of the official GunnaGeek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying, I will find a way to get free TV from Chris. I'll do it. He might not know about it, but I'll figure it out. I'm Chris Farrell, and I officially own CordSlayers.com now. I think CordMurderers.com is also available, but I'm not registering it. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.